Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 179, Dr. Thomas Young, the Forgotten Revolutionary. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm going to be joined by Scott Nadler to tell us about the life of forgotten revolutionary Dr. Thomas Young. Young was a native of New York's Hudson Valley, and he seemed to be present at all of Boston's revolutionary events, from the creation of the Committee of Correspondence, to the Boston Massacre, to the Tea Party. He was an early and influential friend of Ethan Allen, and a critic of established religious practice at the time. Though he died fairly early in the Revolutionary War, he was instrumental to the revolutionary movements in New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Vermont. Scott was scheduled to present about Thomas Young at History Camp Boston on March 14th, but the COVID-19 crisis has forced a postponement. But before we talk about Thomas Young, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is an article that ran in the Boston Globe this past week under the title, You Don't Understand, Captain, He Has a Gun. It recaps the 50th anniversary of the hijacking of Eastern Airways Flight 1320 on St. Patrick's Day in 1970. This commuter flight from Newark to Boston was beginning its final approach to Logan Airport when a scruffy-looking passenger pulled out a 38 caliber revolver and demanded access to the cockpit. The article points out that after a series of hijackings in the 1960s, they were considered routine, almost a fun adventure for passengers and crew. A political radical would demand passage to Cuba, the crew would give the passengers unlimited free drinks to keep them calm, and then everyone would dine out on the stories for years after they returned home safely. This time, it was different. Not long after the hijacker got access to the cockpit, shots rang out. Within moments, the co-pilot was dead, the pilot was badly wounded, and the hijacker had been shot, beaten, and subdued. It was the first time an American flight had been hijacked with deadly results. The injured pilot managed to turn the plane toward Boston, call for help, and land the plane safely at Logan. This piece reveals what happened in the air and after the fateful flight landed in Boston. It also profiles everyone from the flight attendants, to the pilot and first officer, to the investigating police officers, to a number of passengers. Despite our recent episode about the crash landing of World Flight 30, this story had completely escaped my attention. I hope you find it as interesting as I did. And for our upcoming event this week, I have two local organizations with online virtual events. First up, the USS Constitution Museum is conducting virtual tours of the ship at 1 p.m. every day. They had to close the museum doors due to the pandemic on March 14th. But in the meantime, you may see even more of the ship than usual by following the active-duty sailors who give tours on Facebook Live every weekday at 1 p.m. The museum explains by saying, The active-duty sailors stationed aboard USS Constitution normally provide free tours and offer public visitation to more than 600,000 people each year, as they support the ship's mission of promoting the Navy's history, maritime heritage, and raising awareness of the importance of a sustained naval presence. The ship's active-duty sailors will take viewers through the ship to include several areas normally closed to the public and provide an opportunity to ask live questions. The ship's commanding officer, Commander John Binda, adds, Our mission is to represent and promote the U.S. Navy, USS Constitution, and our nation's rich maritime history. And through this crisis, we will use our digital presence to continue that mission. 
And next up, we have an event organized through Plymouth Plantation. If you've visited the plantation, you know that along with the English settlement, there's also a recreated Wampanoag village. When I've been there in recent years, I've enjoyed the Wampanoag home site more than the plantation itself, and it took me a while to realize why. The pilgrims are all reenacting 17th century settlers, only speaking as their characters would have, and pretending not to know anything about modern events and inventions. The Wampanoag, on the other hand, take a different approach, as described on the plantation website. Unlike the people you'll meet in the 17th century English village, the staff in the Wampanoag home site are not role players. They are all native people, either Wampanoag or from other native nations, and they'll be dressed in historically accurate clothing, mostly made of deerskin. They speak from a modern perspective about Wampanoag history and culture. They're happy to see you, and will invite you into a way to, or tell you what they are growing in the garden, or show you how to play hubbub, a traditional game still enjoyed by many Wampanoag today. The staff in the Wampanoag home site are very proud of their native heritage, and knowledgeable of the traditions, stories, technology, pastimes, music, and dance of the people who have lived in this region for more than 10,000 years. This ability to bring a modern perspective to traditional folkways is much more helpful to me when I try to understand the past than the forced ignorance of the English reenactors. Now, the Wampanoag interpreters are bringing their knowledge to a series of virtual tours. On Monday, April 6th and April 13th, you can sign up for a session called History at Home, People of the Dawn. Here's how they describe it. Learn about the daily life of the Wampanoag people in the 17th century. In this one-hour program, students will explore the connection the Wampanoag and other Native people have to their seasonal way of life, their respect for all living beings, and the ways they continue to carry on their traditions today. Each virtual tour is $10 and requires advanced registration. We'll link to the details for both events in the show notes this week at hubhistory.com slash 179. Before moving on with the show, I just want to pause and thank everyone who supports Hub History on Patreon. Part of me thought that we'd see a huge surge of new listeners during this pandemic, but instead the opposite's been true. We've seen much lower download numbers than usual. When I think about it, it makes sense. I personally haven't been commuting, I haven't been going to the gym, and that really cuts into my own podcast listening time. During this slowdown, we're especially grateful for our most loyal supporters who help us pay for web security and hosting, podcast media hosting, transcription, and audio processing tools. If you'd like to be among them, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Scott Nadler is a Santa Fe-based consultant in strategy and sustainability with a background in government, industry, and academia. He's had a lifelong interest in the life and broad influence of Dr. Thomas Young, and he had been scheduled to speak at History Camp Boston on March 14th. All right, so Scott Nadler, welcome to the show. Thank you. You are the first of what I would call our History Camp refugees, the first person to come and join us after History Camp Boston got postponed from March to July due to our current pandemic. And you're going to come all the way from Santa Fe to present on Thomas Young, who's a figure from the Revolutionary Era. Can you start us out just by telling us a little bit about who Thomas Young was and why he was worth flying all the way across the country to present about him? Sure, Jake. Thomas Young was one of these 
to me, interesting figures who was involved in everything, may have been really a true agent in some ways, and we never hear from him except as in footnotes. He's someone that I stumbled into uh, back in my student days, became fascinated by him actually when I was a student in Boston. And the more I've studied, the more interesting he's been as a He's a man of contradictions. He's an outsider who managed to play the inside game. He was really native nowhere in the colonies, yet seemed to be effective everywhere. He was probably pretty abrasive and a bit of a divider personally, yet he connected people across geography and across social class. And his life is just a good story. Now, he is present at a lot of seminal events in Boston in the years leading up to the revolution, but he started out in the Hudson Valley of New York. So how does he get from there to Boston? In a roundabout way, but with, with <laughs> political motivation. Um, he was born in 1731 in the Hudson Valley. And he was the poor relation of the relatively wealthy and powerful Clinton clan that produced governors and generals and later DeWitt Clinton. He became a doctor through study and apprenticeship, in effect. He quickly moved away from the Clintons to a smaller, even more remote Hudson Valley town, <laughs> um, married the daughter of the town's patriarch, wrote poetry, speculated in land in what later became Vermont, uh, befriended and mentored a local thug named Ethan Allen. They got arrested together for blasphemy along the way. Oh, and he gave the town its name, which is Amenia in kind of bastardized Latin. And in 1764, he moved to Albany mostly to become more political as far as we can tell, immediately became involved in the Stamp Act controversy, quickly, even though an outsider became a prominent member of the Sons of Liberty, became very active. And by 1766, Stamp Act is more or less calm. He's there in Albany. And while everybody else up and down the colonies is pretty much laying back from politics, he's trying to get more involved. And he goes from Albany to Boston in 1766, deliberately to become more involved in politics. And as far as we can tell, kind of stalking Sam Adams. That was something that really struck me as I was trying to do a little background reading to be ready for this conversation. It seemed like he moved to Boston for no other reason except basically the propaganda that he'd seen Sam Adams put out and wanted to be closer to that. Yes, it, it's pretty clear that the politics was a big motivator, and because he, be, he had become so involved in the Committee of Correspondence from the Sons of Liberty, he'd already built a little bit of a virtual network. Now, uh, there's a, a one quote, and with no real context, from Thomas Young's brother that says that he may have had to leave town from Albany. Um, not a lot of detail. He certainly was uh, active both as a doctor and as an agitator, so he could have he could have had a lot of reasons why he had to leave. But clearly, the reason why he went – if he had to leave Albany, the reason why he went to Boston was politics, organizing, and in particular, uh, likely, he had Sam Adams in his targets as he went. Now, it seems like for him to be so focused on Sam, Sam Adams' writing, he must have already been fairly radicalized by that point. So, does that date from his years in Albany or from his years in – uh, Amenia, when do you think that started? It started at least in Amenia, and I don't want to get into too much pop psychology, but possibly earlier back in his days with the, with the Clintons as the poor relation. In Amenia, he did um, get involved in some of the Hudson Valley's very fertile landlord-tenant 
politics. And his first published writing, other than some, some very bad poetry, uh, was a tract about uh, – essentially said, if government doesn't protect tenants, then why do you need to protect the landlords? Another thing that made it very popular, as you can imagine. So he had been radicalized to at least by that point. But – and this is speculation on my part. I think that there really were, and maybe it's projection on my part, my point, part, who knows, but it seems like there may well have been some, at least, if not resentment toward the hierarchy and toward power, at least some healthy skepticism. The Clintons, Thomas Young's family came over, his, his mother came over on a ship chartered by the Clintons to come over from, from Ireland. The Clintons had been an Anglo-Irish family of some note uh, and some wealth. They came over. He was on the maternal line and was had some of the Irish blood in him. So he clearly was not in a favored part of the family. Mm-hmm. One of the early stories about how bright he is is that um, he got to go to the library in the big house, the Clinton's house, and how he just poured through all the books there. Well, that tells you something about not having access to the same books himself. In fact, his Clinton cousins, who were within a year or two of his age, two of them became surgeons, and they were sent to New York to study. Thomas Young studied under, basically was an autodidact, studied under a local doctor that, you know, I have visions of an old West town drunk doctor, practically. There's not a lot positive said about the guy he studied under. So from even before Amenia, my guess is he was pretty aware of this distinction between the haves and the have-nots, and he knew which side he was on. And of course, in in retrospect, his close friendship with Ethan Allen seems very important, very pretentious because of where they each ended up, Young being central to so many activities in revolutionary Boston and then Ethan Allen eventually in Vermont. But I don't have a clear picture of whether their relationship at the time was politically motivated or was just strictly uh, two bright young guys who met in the wilds of, of New York. They got arrested together. They, I think they wrote a book together, but I have no sense of what that relationship was really like. It's a really interesting and fairly complex one. Thomas Young was, was a little bit older and while most of it was self-educated, was in fact pretty educated. He was good with languages when he moved to what became Amenia. He married the daughter of the town elder. It was a German Moravian town, and Thomas Young picked up German while he was there, and his Latin was apparently pretty good. Ethan Allen was truly a thug, and he and his brothers took their father's decaying business and built it into a pretty strong business empire with a very clear history of everything from physical fights to court fights to intimidation, and they really cornered their market for their mill through some pretty aggressive business practices, to put it gently. And what kind of business was that? Was that timber? It was, yeah, I believe there, uh, there was timber, and I think there was an early – there was some metal work there as well. Um, I have to go back back into the files on that one. <laughs> the, um, and it seems like there was a, definitely an, a, a mentor-mentee kind of relationship. Thomas Young was clearly the leader. He introduced uh, – he introduced Ethan Allen to some of the deist concepts. The, and he introduced, we think he introduced Ethan Allen to the whole concept of what became Vermont. 
Thomas Young was involved with a very, very shady character named Lydius in speculating on property. And it was all caused by the fact that you had about seven different conflicting royal grants for Vermont. And New York claimed it, and Massachusetts claimed it, and New Hampshire claimed it. And so Lydius came in and said, well, since nobody's grant is valid, I'll make up my own title. Thomas Young was part of that process. Um, and as early as 1761, uh, there's some reports that say Thomas Young was this innocent, naive victim. But I found his own, in his own hand, reports and surveys. He was there in 1761. He saw the property himself. He knew what was going on. And it may have been part of his political radicalization. He didn't think anybody had a right to just claim property through royal charter compared to people who went in and worked the land. So he probably introduced Ethan Allen to the whole potential up in that area. Um, the book they wrote together is interesting because um, analysis suggests that it was probably written more by Young. He was far better educated. Um, Tom, nothing, nothing had happened with the book. After Thomas Young died and his widow and his largely itinerant or, or impoverished families moved back to Amenia, Ethan Allen, after he gets out of British uh, captivity, on his way back up to Vermont, stops off, sees the widow, picks up the manuscript, takes it to Vermont, and seven years later publishes it under his own name without mentioning Thomas Young. Now, it's a dubious distinction because the book got a lot of criticism, and I'll be honest, I've tried to read it. I find it utterly unreadable. That may say more about me than the book. I don't know. This is a basically a deist Absolutely. Tract, it's, right? a, it's a long, ranting religious tract that essentially is saying all the things that are wrong with organized religion. Right, which is what landed them in trouble back in 1756 or 7 when they faced their blasphemy charges. That's right. They also were in trouble for having essentially self-vaccinated, which was also against the law. So, But the blasphemy was the big issue. So the relationship is, is very much kind of an on-again, off-again, but it becomes critical to the final chapter of Thomas Young's life. Because in after the Boston days, and we can, we can come back and go through the Boston days. Of course, yeah. But after the Boston days, um, Thomas Young has to leave Boston because the British have him on the hit list. He's beaten up by British. He's attacked by British soldiers. He escapes to Newport. The British try and bring him back from Newport. He escapes to Philadelphia. Of course, being Thomas Young, escapes to Philadelphia in time to walk in just as Congress is reconvening in 1775. Um, he's already got a reputation uh, as a as a uh, as a fairly despicable activist to the conservative Philadelphia crowd, um, and so he comes into Philadelphia, gets very involved in local politics there, has a key role in the revolution in Pennsylvania that overthrew the state government and led to the Declaration of Independence passing, goes into the service as a surgeon in the Army Hospital. In the meantime, he's continuing to agitate with Ethan Allen for Vermont to become its own state. Um, And there are a lot of state records in Vermont that acknowledge that the name Vermont came from Ethan Allen. He's the one who, or I'm sorry, from Thomas Young. Thomas Young is the one who came up with the name Vermont, and he gets credit for it in the state archives in Vermont. I think I also saw a reference to him naming several of several towns in Vermont too. I thought I wouldn't be surprised. He he was pretty uh, pretty pretty free with the creative Latinisms, <laughs> right? And abhorred a blank spot on a map, as far as I can tell. Ah, right. But he he the 
the critical moment came in June of 1777 because Thomas Young had urged Ethan Allen and urged Vermont, which just formally took the Vermont name in, in June of that year, to declare its own independence as a state. Because his logic was, if New York could declare independence from England, then Vermont could declare independence from New York on the same grounds. What's your problem? It all makes sense to him. So he's sending letters to Vermont and saying, just bring this up in Congress. I'm sure they'll go for it. New York in particular goes berserk. And New York in June of 77 literally puts in a uh, a resolution in Congress that says we need to investigate this. For those who think congressional investigations came later, this is 1777. And they resolved to be to meet as a committee of the whole to consider the Vermont issue. Right in the middle of this, in June of 1777, while serving in the, the Revolutionary Hospital, Thomas Young dies of a fever that he probably picked up in the hospital. Six days later, and about two blocks away, after he's died, Congress prints or Congress approves a report from the Committee of the Whole that essentially censures Thomas Young by name. You know, the, the, the vote what Congress approved said that said printed paper signed Thomas Young as a false, scandalous, and malicious libel calculated to foment a spirit of jealousy and distrust betwixt the Congress and the state of New York and to deceive and mislead the people to whom it is addressed. Resolved that the contents of the said paper are highly injurious to the honor and dignity of Congress. That's about a guy who died a week before in an, serving in an army hospital two blocks away. Right. So that's Thomas Young's later life in Philadelphia. But like you said, he is very central in a critical sort of eight-year period between the Stamp Act crisis and the Massachusetts Government Act here in Boston. So we have this country doctor who's a religious radical. Um, he's a medical nonconformist, at least, uh, inoculating folks uh, against the legal authority. And he's becoming more and more politi politically radical. So he follows Sam Adams' teachings here to Boston. How does he start to get involved in the first few years uh, in the Whig movement here in Boston? It looks like Sam Adams realized very quickly that here he had somebody who could bridge the gap. And this goes back to why I was attracted to, to Thomas Young to begin with. Because you have Sam Adams orchestrating a policy, along with others, but he clearly was, was behind a lot of it, that really operated on two tracks. You had all the letters, petitions, meetings, formal votes, and then you had the mob. And the mob, as we all know from this period, the mob is a really interesting institution because the mob occasionally gets out of control and burns a house they shouldn't have and breaks a window. But by and large, as mobs goes, these guys are pretty orderly. You want them to show up at two o'clock at this one of the customs officers' houses, they show up. You want them to make a ruckus, they make a ruckus. You want them to then leave, they leave. Mobs don't do that. And they certainly don't do it spontaneously. Somebody's organizing them. And with all due respect to John Hancock and John Adams, those guys aren't doing the organizing. What appears is that very quickly Sam Adams realized that in Thomas Young, 
he had an organizer who could connect up those two tracks. And so the two of the things that he has, that Sam Adams has Thomas Young doing very quickly by 1767 is working in the committees of correspondence and working directly with the North End and the South End gangs. There are some rumors that in 1767, the you, you had a seminal event then. Um, prior to that, you had Pope's Day celebrations on Guy Fawkes Day. And traditionally, it was the North End and the South End gangs each having their own competing parades that turned into essentially a big brawl between the two. Right. Henry Knox famously took part in, in those brawls. Isaiah Thomas, a lot of familiar exactly. patriot names. And part of Sam Adams' strategy, which it appears Thomas Young helped him implement, was to get the two gangs to agree that starting in 1767, under the aegis of the Sons of Liberty, the Pope's Day would be a more political event aimed at the British rather than aimed at each other. So, the first time you'd see effigies of political leaders instead of effigies of the Pope, right? Exactly, exactly. And by 1768, Adams is sending Thomas Young riding around the colony, setting up the committees of correspondence that you need with each township to reduce the dependence on the state legislature, which the governor controls and can, can essentially dissolve. He can't dissolve the town meetings in the same way. And so Thomas Young is out riding around the colony, going from town to town in a way that, again, Sam Adams, John Hancock, the others aren't. Um, by 1769, there's a, a seminal event, a huge Sons of Liberty dinner in Dorchester. Yeah, I know John Adams wrote about that event in his in his diaries. He said he dined, I think we said with 500 patriots, at the Sons of, Sons of Liberty in Dorchester, which I will find and link to. There's a great list of everybody who was there. And there you've got John Adams and Sam Adams and John Hancock, James Otis, Paul Revere, Joseph Oren, and Thomas Young. Um, you also get this interesting – you mentioned the two different roles – Later that year, when James Otis was infamously attacked in the, the coffee house brawl, most of us who obsess about this period know about James Otis being being struck down by the Keen in Boston Coffee House. Mm -hmm. Few of us have ever noticed where did he go to be treated? What doctor did he go to? Thomas Young. Oh, interesting. Um, by the time you get to the 1770 and the Boston Massacre year, um, he, Thomas Young is clearly radical. He's quoted as saying it's high time for the people to take the government into their own hands. But those, those two roles that you talked about, Jake, are evident uh, during the massacre itself. There are There's a very clear firsthand report of Thomas Young standing in Royal Exchange Lane telling people that, that there's a rumpus, but they should go back, but he's got a sword in his hand. So there's a, a clear mixed mixed message. message there. Yeah. But one of the five civilians killed was James Caldwell. Where did who again treated Caldwell? Caldwell was carried to Thomas Young's house where he died. Hmm. Um, by by July, he's he's John Rowe is mentioning him in his diary as somebody who's you know proceeding who's running who's leading marches through the town and and uh, the next year Hutchinson refer, Governor Hutchinson refers to him as one of our incendiaries of the lower order, which <laughs> Thomas Young would probably have considered a compliment, a yeah, badge of honor, probably exactly. And by 1771, um, in March, there's an interesting event, which is the first annual oration commemorating the Boston Massacre. And people have written PhD dissertations about who got that honor during the first 5, 10, 15 years. The very first annual oration was delivered by Thomas Young. 
It was interesting. I tried to look into Young's role in the, the first orations, getting ready for this this conversation, and it seems almost like he was a a counterweight to some of the more official commemorations. I think James Lovell maybe gets credit in the official records as having given the town's oration, but then days before, uh, or actually weeks before, Young has already given an oration at the manufacturing house. Exactly. And the manufacturing house obviously being symbolic mm-hmm. for its, its earlier role. So the, yeah, that was the, he was, that was the, the, that was the revolutionary um, anniversary. And just to, for listeners who might not be familiar, the manufacturing house was essentially a, a standoff between the town and the British soldiers during the occupation, the beginning of the occupation that was won essentially by the town. So it, it's a, a symbol of some sort of resistance to the British troops. And, and what's interesting is that and I mentioned earlier that, that Thomas Young is the outsider who, who kind of becomes the insider. By that point, um, the North, the, the North End Caucus is one of the, the organizing bastions. He's not just a member, but he's a member of the, he's one of the 11 member executive committee members. So he's become pretty much inside. Um, 1772, if you open up the, the records of the Committee of Correspondence, which are online digitally, every few pages, his name crops up. He's in every meeting. He's, he's so active that in 1772, he's, he bought a new house that was close, just to be closer to Fennel Hall. In his role in the Committee of Correspondence, he's alongside Sam Adams, Josiah Quincy, Joseph Warren, James Otis, William Molyneux, uh, Benjamin Church, a lot of very familiar names in Boston history. Exactly. Exactly. Except with the exception maybe of Mullen and most of those are names that we all know, we all have known. They all had, they were esteemed roles that they played later on. They're all respected for it. Um, Molyneux is more of the, the sons of liberty veterans of dubious distinction. <laughs> right. Um, right. That, if, he, if he had lived longer, he might have had a chance to, to craft a different, uh, public memory. <laughs> right. Though he probably would have been out of favor as an anti-federalist. <laughs> right. And then, then comes kind of the crowning glory in some ways of Thomas Young's Boston career, which is the Tea Party. Um, obviously, a lot of people are credited with having come up with the idea. He's one of them. I don't have any basis for thinking that he was the one, but he certainly was one of those. Um, he was busy in his doctor role, writing a lot of the sarcastic articles about how tea was a poison uh, during a lot of the, the media wars. And he apparently, the, as the Tea Party was taking place, he was speaking at, I believe, Fennel Hall and reportedly had the crowd in stitches with all of his sort of off-color doctor jokes about tea and all the double entendres. And there's a, a bit of a minor controversy in the literature as to whether his speech was to provide cover and distract everyone so that the perpetrators could sneak out and do their deed or whether it was to give him an alibi because he was so openly associated with the with the rebellious streak. Right. And he had an alibi. He was in front of a couple of hundred people. Little from column A, little from column B. Exactly. Whatever the whatever the, the process, the result was that he was so visible to the British that um as I said, he was on the hit list. There was a report there was a broadside that was circulated um in Boston that had some very, it was very subtle. It said, the friends of your king and country and of America hope and expect it from you soldiers. 
The instant rebellion happens, that you will put the above persons immediately to the sword, destroy their houses, and plunder their effect. It is just that they should be the first victims to the mischiefs that have brought upon us. Thomas Young was on that. Hmm. Maybe somebody jumped the gun, hard to say, but in 1774, um, things were obviously tense. By August and September, the port is closed. You have the, the powder alarm. You have Congress meeting the first time in Philadelphia. The assembly has to move to, to Salem. It's not, but they can't get inside Boston. Somewhere along the line, uh, two British officers attack Thomas Young on the street. They knock him down. Um, it's guessed that they thought they'd killed him. He was carried home covered with blood. Mm-hmm. And he later said that if he hadn't seen the blow coming and moved his head, he probably would have been killed by it. And it was definitely time to get out of Dodge. And so he went on to Newport and from there on to Philadelphia. And so that was his Boston career started with anonymity and ended as essentially a known enemy of the king to be hunted down in the street. So I guess you consider that as progress depending on your perspective. <laughs> right. If you're going for radicalism, uh, that would be a success. Absolutely. He made, he made the list. And he only lives about three more years after leaving Boston, but he still has this really outsized effect on two or, or maybe three colonies at that point. Absolutely. In fact, the, um, and the, the revolution in Pennsylvania is a whole other story of its own. There's actually a, uh, a wonderful book by William Hoagland that, that essentially spends the entire book talking about those couple of weeks in, in May of 1766. But the impact on Pennsylvania is profound because in order to get the conservative Pennsylvania delegation to reverse the position of the conservative Pennsylvania legislature and vote for independence and really tip the balance, the only way they, they, there were referendums tried, there were all kinds of things tried. And finally, um, what the radicals agreed was, there's no way around this. We've got to basically stage a coup. So, alongside Young, who were the other radicals in Pennsylvania uh, in that faction? The key people were – well, it was interesting because there were two two very local uh, people, Timothy Matlack and James Cannon, who were very involved. Sam Adams was in town and most of the plotting apparently took place in his rooms. He was deeply oh. involved. Um, James Cannon was a teacher who had come from Edinburgh. Timothy Matlack was a failed Quaker. Hmm. Um who had been in debtor's prison and had a beer business and was pretty much, you know, Ethan Allen writ large. Um, but another one of the key group was Thomas Paine. And that group met and plotted um, and planned essentially a revolution in Pennsylvania within the course of two or three weeks. Part of the key was bringing the Germans, what we think of as the Pennsylvania Dutch, bringing them in. And Thomas Young, who had learned German from his wife's family all those years back, rode the circuit out in Pennsylvania Dutch country, getting the German immigrants on the side of the radicals. They, I won't go into all the machinations because it's fascinating, but it is incredibly detailed. But they, they succeeded in overthrowing the legitimate government of Pennsylvania, having essentially a totally illegitimate new convention that adopted a new constitution and elected a new legislature. And uh, the constitution that they wrote, which then became the model for Vermont, was much more of a democratic constitution. And as you know, 
John Adams is quoted as saying um, that there was a the convention in Pennsylvania had adopted a government of one representative assembly. And John Adams noted that when Franklin then went to France, he carried with him a printed copy of that constitution. And as Adams put it so dryly, it was immediately propagated through France. In a passive voice, not who said it. It was immediately propagated through France that it was the plan of government of Mr. Franklin. In truth, and this is John Adams, in truth, it was not Franklin, but Timothy Matlack, James Cannon, Thomas Young, and Thomas Paine, who were the authors of it. So you had this, this person, this, this outsider who only lived, um, you know, only, only lived into his, his forties and helped shape Massachusetts politics, helped create Vermont politics, helped overturn Pennsylvania politics. To a large extent, through all that, had a, a seminal role in the revolution. And the ultimate Boston reminder for me is I once went to where that house was that Thomas Young bought to be close to Fennel Hall. If you go through all the maps you can find, it's a lovely location. It's now the sidewalk outside the warm and fuzzy government center complex. <laughs> And if you stand on the sidewalk and we're as close as I could come to, you know, without being a surveyor, to exactly where his house was, mm-hmm. the changes, there were buildings in between now, thanks to the road. You can stand right where his house was and you can see Fennel Hall. You can look over there and see Fennel Hall. Mm-hmm. And right in front of it, right in your line of sight, there's a statue. And it's a statue that says, here we have someone who is the organizer of the revolution. And of course, the statue is Sam Adams, not Thomas Young. Right. And as you stand there where Thomas Young lived, looking past Samuel Adams' statue at Fennel Hall, you realize that in this whole picture, Thomas Young has disappeared. Yeah, it's really remarkable when you look at the, both in Pennsylvania, well, in New York and Pennsylvania and in Massachusetts, all the famous names who he's associated with throughout his life, Sam and John Adams. You have Ethan Allen back in New York. You have world-famous Thomas Paine in Pennsylvania. Why is it that we don't remember Thomas Young as well? Great question. I think there there are both some very specific issues and some more general ones. Specifically, the fact that he did die in 1777. There is no later story. Mm-hmm. The fact that New York censured him. Uh, his family, if you think about how, whether it's Hamilton's wife or Adams's generations, there were families to carry on and build up those reputations and bring them into the 19th century myth-making. Right. Thomas Young's family stumbled back to Amenia, dead broke, sold his books. Ethan Allen took the manuscript. Uh, I found a scrap of paper, a burned scrap in a file where uh, Thomas Young's son, who also became a doctor, applied to the governor of New York in, in 1782 for a government position as a doctor. Who did he have to appeal, apply to? The then governor, one of the Clinton cousins. Uh. I can't find that he ever got an answer. Uh, later on, Ethan Allen tried to get the state of Vermont to provide land grant to Thomas Young's family because of everything he had done. The legislature never acted. Uh, to be honest, Ethan Allen never gave them any of his huge property holdings either. <laughs> but there – You've got a family that just disappears. You've got a man that disappears physically. You've got a family that disappears economically and politically. So that's one piece of it. The other piece is when you think about it, there really are 
these two cohorts. There are the, the aristocrats of the day, the hierarchy, who really are known for the revolutionary days because of what they did as builders afterward. You know, the, the, the Washington, the at Washington Adams, Jefferson, mm-hmm. and those guys, because of, if they hadn't done something afterward, would they still be as known? And the ones we know almost all went to college, Harvard or College of New Jersey that became Princeton or William and Mary. They had a profession. They were practicing lawyers or established planters. Almost all of them, including Sam Adams, had government jobs before the revolution, right? whether elected or patronage. Who were the people that Thomas Young associated with? You mentioned William Molina, and uh, we talked about the, the, the interesting characters in Philadelphia. And if you think back and you go through Ebenezer McIntosh and some of the other Sons of Liberty, none of those people had offices before. None of them had established professions. They were, they were merchants, they were, they were um, privateers, liquor dealers, things like that. They didn't have college degrees. They didn't have jobs afterward. They didn't, you know, some of them didn't survive. Some of them were so anti-federalist that they didn't want to have anything to do with the jobs afterward. But they certainly they were. There's a distinction between the disruptors and the builders, and we study and revere the builders. It's much less comfortable to study and revere the disruptors. But without the disruptors clearing the land, mm-hmm. would there have been the opportunity for the builders to build? What do you think made Thomas Young uniquely or nearly uniquely able to bridge that gap between the builders and the brawlers? What do you think drew him alongside brawlers like Ethan Allen and William Molyneux to be able to to bridge the gap to the folks who would later become known as the Founding Fathers? It's a great question, and I'm sure you could come up with There's probably a psychological answer. There's probably a a Marxist historian answer. (laughs) There are a couple of different versions. Mm -hmm. I think what it really comes down to, and again, this is huge projection on my part, I I freely admit, is this is somebody who started out caught between two worlds. He started out as – he was one of the Clinton cousins, but he wasn't one of the Clintons. He was as smart or smarter than them, but he didn't get the same education. But he knew he was one of the smart guys. He knew that he had insight. He knew that he was facile with language. And so he had a foot in both camps. He could speak to either side. He grew up, in a sense, in, in both worlds. But I also think geography matters as well. The fact that he chose to wander because he didn't quite feel like he fit in gave him, I think, a bit of perspective that others didn't have. If you grew up in Boston, the lines were drawn. It would never occur to you, with the possible exception of Paul Revere, it would never occur to you to cross over those lines. If you grew up in Philadelphia, it would never occur to you to cross those lines. Because Thomas Young was the outsider, I don't think he felt quite as constrained. He felt like, hey, I can talk to whoever is going to be useful to what I'm trying to accomplish, and I can talk to them in their language. And if you look at that treatise, the treatise that, that he wrote with Ethan Allen, you know that's not the same language that was used in going to the Pennsylvania Dutch townships <laughs> outside Philadelphia. You know right. this guy. You know, there's, on a much smaller scale, there's a bit of the Barack Obama of, I can speak with authenticity to different audiences because I come from more than one of them myself. Now, you mentioned 
that he spent his last months in a Continental Army hospital in or near Philadelphia, and that he passed away from essentially a camp fever there. I don't, I don't know that we have any more specific cause of death than a fever. No, not that I've ever found. And there's a re- referred to as in the hospital, so there ah. seems to be at least some implication there. And is he buried in Philadelphia? I've never been able to find a grave. Interesting. And I've I've walked through the cemetery in Amenia, mm-hmm. where his uh, most of his his wife's family and some of his I believe his wife is buried there. I'd have to go back to check, but I've walked through that cemetery looking at every headstone. I've gone through all the databases I can find. I cannot find any record of where he was buried. One speculation is that he was essentially dumped in a pit with lime, like a number of fever victims in a number of army hospitals through a number of wars. Right. True. Always a possibility in a a mass casualty situation like that, I suppose. Yeah. Makes me not want to consider what might be coming up (laughs) in present day. Let's not go there. Before I wrap up, I'm just curious how you – Personally, how you developed this intense interest in the life and this radical career of Thomas Young. That's a Boston story in itself. Um, When I was going to college, I was at Harvard studying government. And I would have days where I spent my morning listening to Bernard Balin deliver fascinating lectures about Harbottle Door and all the other great characters of the revolution. Mm. And then in the afternoon, I was doing work that had me in political circles, and I would literally be the fly on the wall, the guy in the back of the room on a second-story office and off of Washington Street when it was still the garment district in a window that was literally smoke-filled because I'm old enough that you could still smoke in all those rooms and watch a bunch of liberal Democrats trying to figure out how to carve out a black state Senate district and whether the, the whose ox would be gored. Would the seat come from the Jewish Democratic seat from Newston, from Newton, or the Irish Democratic seat from the South End, or the Italian Democratic seat from the North End. And the guy running the meeting was this kind of unknown um, state rep by the name of something like Barney Frank. <laughs> yeah, something and, nobody's heard of these days. Right. And when you have when you spend your morning with Bernard Balin and your afternoon with Barney Frank, you start to wonder, well, who was Barney Frank then? Because Given the mobs that Bernard Balin's talking about and Harbottle Door is, is documenting, somebody, as I said earlier, somebody is organizing those mobs and it, you know, John Adams ain't Barney Frank. Now, right. One can argue that Barney Frank isn't John Adams either, but you'd be the first <laughs> to say that. Um, and so that got me thinking. And as I began to just do reading on my own, um, I did more political organizing on my own. I spent time organizing. Uh, for voters for a George McGovern front in a George Wallace County, I saw the realities of street organizing and the disconnect became more and more clear. I began doing reading and I had a list that I used to call my dirty dozen. There were three or four in Boston, three or four in New York. I stumbled on some early work by Pauline Mayer that includes a chapter on Thomas Young. So I thought, that's interesting. And as I went through and pulled up, you know, who were the people in New York? Who are the people in Boston? Who are the people in Philadelphia? Who are the people in Charlton? I kept tripping over this one name. And to put it in technical academic terms, sooner or later, I had to say to myself, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> 
And and why does he keep show, showing up in every colony I look at? So at first, I thought this was Zelik. You know, I thought there was a Woody Allen character who showed up in Forrest Gump who was photoshopped in. Right. And then I realized, you know, that that to put it in current hideous jargon, to think of him that way was to deny his agency, because he wasn't just a spectator who stumbled in. You know, as we said earlier, he left Albany to go dive into the middle of it mm -hmm. at a time that. You know, George Washington was worried about how to make money off of Martha Custis's land, and, and John Adams was worried about whether to hire a clerk. This guy is relocating to a different province where he knows nobody mm -hmm. to get into the fight. So, how could I resist? Well, if people want to hear more about Thomas Young, and they'd like to hear more about Thomas Young from you, how can they go about doing that? The best way is to hope and, and pray that we get through what we're going through now so that the history camp in Boston that was originally scheduled uh, for this month in March can go on as scheduled in July. Mm -hmm. I presented on Thomas Young at a history camp in Colorado last year, which was the first time that I spoke about this in public and to my family's relief found somebody else to listen to this. <laughs> I was looking forward with some trepidation. It took me a while to get up the nerve to say, I'll come to Boston and talk about this there where half the people in the audience probably know more about it than I do and can tell me everything I'm getting wrong. But decided that that would be half the fun. Uh, History Camp was postponed because of the pandemic. It's tentatively rescheduled for July. I've got that on my calendar. I'm looking forward to going there to present. And bonus for anybody who does decide to attend in July, I believe I will still be on a panel uh that I was supposed to be on in March. And as far as I know, all the panelists are planning to come in July. So two for one for you listeners. Well, Scott Nadler, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to, to talk about something that I've obsessed about for a long time. <laughs> Absolutely. To learn more about forgotten revolutionary Dr. Thomas Young, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 179. We'll have links to the notes of the Boston Town Meeting where the Committee of Correspondence was created, John Adams' notes from the Boston Massacre trial mentioning Young's presence, and a 1772 letter to New York schoolmaster Hugh Hughes proclaiming Bostonians the saviors of America. We'll also link to 1976 profiles of Thomas Young by Bruce Henry and Pauline Meyer. Plus, we'll have a link to History Camp Boston, with the assumption that more tickets will become available as the rescheduled date in July gets closer. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming events and the 50th anniversary recap of the hijacking of Eastern Airlines Flight 1320, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. Listeners.